Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. This is a Manhattan-bound B Express train. The next stop is... Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello and welcome to Skylines, the City Metric Podcast. I'm Barbara. And I'm John. And this week we're talking about the arts and the city. We have to look at music as, you know, as a viable, you know, economic good that can make cities richer. What's great about Toronto uh, in a really tangible sense is we have this incredible ravine system that runs throughout the entire city. A lot of the art and a lot of the beauty that is in our cities is stuff that is put there for that greater good, whether it's to do with, think about sort of the churches and the cathedrals and think about the sort of the statues of the great good, the great and the good that sort of happen in the sort of formal public spaces. That tradition continues. We have a tendency at City Metric probably because I'm a massive nerd to talk about cities more in terms of their their infrastructure than anything else. We write a lot about transport, we write a lot about housing, the actual physical fabric of the city. But that's not really what a city is. That's not actually what it's for, is it? A city is about people and the stuff that actually happens within it. And I think sometimes in in, in the public debate about urbanism, that kind of gets a bit squeezed out. Yeah, and I think it's sometimes thought of as a sort of slightly silly um, addition to local policy. And it's kind of you throw something to the masses that's bright and colourful and then that's it. Whereas I suppose it's a bit like arts education, really, that it's not that easy to tell what the direct benefits are. But then when you take it away, it becomes really clear that it did have a benefit. Yeah, yeah. I think the point we're getting at is it's sometimes, in terms of public policy, it can feel quite difficult to justify spending money on... Uh, you know, on arts budgets, on on like local theatres or whatever, when you've actually got you've got like old people who need social care or roads that need repairing, and you know, on that kind of day to day basis, it can be quite difficult to justify spending something on I don't know a, a street festival or something. But without those things, cities are kind of nothing. I mean, if you think yeah. of like what symbolises any city in the world that you've heard of it's very unlikely to be some big road, is it, or public service. It's going to be something that came out of an artistic Yeah, and uh, without impulse. sounding too kind of, um, kind of creepy about this, when you do lose those things, you can lose a sense of community or you can leave a whole load of young people with nothing to do. 
and the negative effects of those things can be really striking and really bad and you then end up clearing up the mess of people not caring about their street and throwing litter all over it or people taking drugs because they're really really bored and so even if you're like quite a cynic about this stuff it probably is a worthwhile investment so let's let's think of some examples let's kind of come up with some some cities where there is uh where we associate them with something artistic in some way you've got like liverpool and the mersey sound like that's very much liverpool's thing isn't it the kind of music of the 60s yeah and uh, it was city of culture right which yeah i guess helps because you get this big in- investment of funding and ideas and then i think it's quite easy to keep making that case whereas if you're somewhere that's not known for that stuff then i think you can sort of fall off on the wayside i mean i lived in seattle growing up which um again has a very kind of strong cultural history but hugely helped by stuff like so um kind of a businessman who was diagnosed with a really serious illness decided to take all his money and make a huge music museum called the um emp which again is like really great and it means people then think of culture and then it becomes a good thing for local politicians to do cultural stuff but it sometimes i think you do need that outside investment as well let's come what, what culture has there been coming out of seattle i've got i've got nirvana and i've got fraser what yeah. else is starbucks oh starbucks culture. yeah that's that, um, that i think it's just always been i think because for a long time a lot of different groups of people have moved there because of the kind of big business community there's just this, this kind of sense of kind of melting pot of culture Actually, this isn't a point about culture at all. I'm going to be dragging us back to my, my geeky transport stuff again. But my favourite fact about Seattle is the monorail, which is, you know, one of the symbols of the city, only goes for like a kilometre and it's basically a tourist attraction. It's got it's no use whatsoever for getting around the place. Um, yeah, it's really fun though. <laughs> it's, it's Seattle's yeah. version of, of London's uh, cable car, I think, Yeah, really. basically. Probably is um, more though, to be quite honest. <laughs> but even if you look at something like, um, I mean, Paris, the Eiffel Tower... It doesn't really play any actual function, does it? It is basically yeah. a sort of cultural expression of what of what the city was meant to be in the 1890s. And as with so many sort of cultural impulses, people at the time hated it as much as celebrated it. And there's that great yeah. quote, I can't remember who from, but the guy who like would only eat at the top of the Eiffel Tower because it was the only place we couldn't see the bloody thing. <laughs> but I think a lot. what's interesting when you think about skylines is the number of buildings that we really think of as symbolising cities, but which don't really have any kind of purpose either in terms of business or kind of even government activity so i mean that's a good example the space needle in seattle is another one it's literally just a a viewing platform um even the london eye i mean you can go around it but it's not it doesn't move fast enough for it to be a real attraction it's just again views and then a sort of slightly strange shape on the skyline that gives the city its kind of signature this is this i think was the impulse behind um the the anush kapoor uh sculpture in the olympic park Mm-hmm. Um, the name of which escapes me right now very helpfully but the, 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 the big red curly thing that clearly serves no useful purpose whatsoever and it's clearly meant to be sort of London equivalent to the Eiffel Tower and time will tell whether that will actually um, work in terms yeah. of it becoming a symbol of the city rather than but it's worth remembering I guess that this idea that you have things for no other reason that they're, they're public funny to look at and kind of quite striking is a very long held thing it's not something new that kind of mad hippies are trying to introduce with public art that actually this is something that's quite kind of inherent to the human condition i feel like this conversation's um become a little bit formless and unstructured as it's, it's probably quite in the nature of just talking about culture capital letters as if it's a thing in itself um so let's let's take one specific bit of culture let's Let's have a think about what the music scene means for cities. Mm-hmm. 
Hi, my name is Shane Shapiro. I'm Managing Director of Sound Diplomacy here in London. We work with cities, governments, property developers, and large organizations on music and music strategies. Okay, music strategy sounds like that's an unfamiliar term. I'm sure we'll, we'll explain what that means. But let's let, let's start with a more basic question and ask, you know, what, why should music matter to a city? Well, let's look at some of the cities that, um, that have used music to define themselves or that have inadvertently been the homes of very famous, you know, musical, um, musical revolutions, whether that's Austin, Texas, whether that's Liverpool, um, or cities like Gothenburg in Sweden or Fukuoka in Japan. They all have definable local music histories that have been turned into a way of thinking about, a way of communicating, a way of marketing, uh, and a way of understanding the city. And music, like anything else, is is a tool to understand. It's a tool to bring people together culturally and economically. So, you know, what we do is we look at the successes that these cities have had in lots of other cities. And we, we go on a work with what you have mentality with cities. So we go into cities and we try to understand the musical heritage and the musical history and the musical ecosystems that they have and try to make them, you know, try to increase them and try to make them, you know, more valid within city policy because a city that pays attention to its music is wealthier, is more vibrant, is healthier, and is often a place that people want to go to. Okay, let's take a specific example. Let's talk about Austin, Texas. Um, it's, it's not somewhere I've ever been. It's not somewhere I'm massively familiar with. So kind of t- tell me about it. S- sell it to me. Well, Austin, Texas is where the University of Texas is. It's one of the biggest universities in Texas. And it's one of the fastest growing cities in, uh, in the United States and has been for a very long time. So about 25 years ago, they set up a festival called the South by Southwest Festival, which is now the largest music festival in the world. They also have Austin City Limits and a number of other festivals. Music is at the heart of the city planning, city policy, and, uh, and the way that the city presents itself. And because of that, its uh, tourism and, and business tourism numbers are significantly uh, high for a city of you know, a million people. So you mentioned South by Southwest, but obviously that's, you know, that's a few days a year. That's not, that's not yeah. on all the time. So what is... What does Austin's music culture look like for the other 355 days? Well, it's, it's obviously, I don't live there, but it, it is a very, very active music culture. South by Southwest is not the only festival in the city. And there, the city is, you know, dotted with bars and pubs and music venues. Um, not that it doesn't experience some of the issues that other cities experience in terms of cost of living and... Um, and the way that sometimes residents and music venues can disagree about certain things and so on and so forth. But there is a very active and, and healthy and quite vibrant music culture there across the whole city center and, and, uh, and even the suburbs in Austin. And obviously, because there's a, a university with tens of thousands of students, there's going to be a, a music scene there 365 days a year. So when you say music culture, we're talking about gig venues, we're talking bars and and clubs and so on. Um, Yes. Well, we look at we look at um, music as an ecosystem. So music is one of those things that it requires a number of of pathways to, you know, to be secure for artists to work their way through the system and be successful. And by artists, I mean, also the representatives of the artists and all the, the record labels and agents and so on and so forth. So. We, we look at, you know, a healthy, um, pragmatic, you know, unemotional relationship between 
uh, music venues in the city. As a as a uh, song of a music city, we look at a place that has record studios that are affordable, um, a place that has affordable housing, um, rehearsal spaces that has policies that support using music uh, across the city in all its ways. So that's things like usage of music in public places, uh, clear rules concerning noise and concerning uh, health and safety, and having music as part of a city master plan. So music, there's a music strategy within the city master plan, like there's an education strategy or a uh, health strategy or a transport strategy. So what are some of the other cities that are doing this well and what does that actually look like? Give us a couple more examples. Uh, when it comes to live music, you could look at Melbourne in Australia. Uh, in the last five to ten years, they've changed a number of policies to make it, um, you know, more, to make it more supportive of music venues and, and general cultural venues, not just music. Uh, and by, by the word music venue as well, we you know, don't think of it as just a, you know, a basement with um, with sticky floors, you know, we think of a music venue as a, as an innovation hub, as a place you know that has daytime uses, as a place that that supports other businesses and supports other technologies. So cities like Melbourne do that. Um, cities like Aarhus in Denmark, which is a small university city, they have a very active music policy, and they're actually doing a music mapping analysis of um, of who lives there and, and you know how much do they use music. Uh, what are the musicians and record labels in the city and so on and so forth. Um, London here, we're working on a music advisory board to, to work politically, to try to address some challenges um, around the way that the city has changed. And a number of other cities uh, around the world, culturally New Orleans, um, music is at the heart and soul of that city. There is, and music is the heart and soul of a number of cities in Africa and in Latin and South America, not, not only culturally, but also from a festival and tourism uh, point of view. So, you know, one of the main festivals in Zanzibar is a music festival, and it brings in tourists, mainly South African tourists, to to the um, to the island. And you know, we look at music needs to be music needs a seat at the table because it impacts a number of other things without often people realizing it. You mentioned affordable housing, and maybe this is the, the me just seeing the world as as you know a Londoner. But affordable housing in a lot of cities is, is increasingly hard to come by. I mean, how big a threat is that? And what are some of the other threats that, that there are out there for, for vibrant music industries? Uh, certainly the problems that we have in London are, are in some ways unique to London and in other ways just unique to big cities. So yes, affordable housing, the word affordable often means different things to different people. And musicians, artists, uh, creative types need a place to live like anyone else. So we face that challenge and there and, and also presumably you can get more profits out of any particular patch of land by scrapping the gig venue and turning it into posh flats instead yeah uh, we disagree with that we believe that that's a it's a short it's a short term short mindedness uh, belief that, that you make more money off of flats you do in the short term but in the long term the value of the music venue to the local community and including the rates and the um, and the taxes that it pays probably our commensurate value. But yes, it, it's very, very difficult to argue that a music venue is more valuable than homes uh, across across um, the world. And this is luckily, and, and in some ways there's challenges, but across Europe, most music venues are owned by the government. So they don't have problems with that, but they are heavily subsidized. Or in the United States and in the UK, it's sort of the opposite. It's, uh, 
It's the private sector that's challenging music venues, recording studios, rehearsal spaces. And in New York is building 1,500 affordable homes specifically for musicians right now, um, which was announced last week. Uh, a similar uh, initiative for, um, for artists is being done in North London. There's, there's artist residences in Toronto and San Francisco. You know, in, in one way, we don't want musicians to be treated any differently to anybody else. We just want music to, again, be participating in, in this debate and hopefully add something valuable. I got sidetracked into talking about housing because, you know, such is my way. I'm a man obsessed. But, you know, what are some of the other uh, threats that, that music cities and city music industries face? The key threat, I think, that music faces is, is the threat of our mindset and the threat of value. So music, first off, is an industry like any other industries. And we have a saleable product. But the way that it's sold sometimes depreciates its value. And the way that it's consumed sometimes depreciates its value. So communicating music like we would communicate a widget or like we would communicate a set of tires or anything like that. To me, we have to look at music as a, you know, as a viable you know, economic good that can make cities richer. And sometimes uh, it's not seen that way. Uh, and that's across, uh, across all genres. Um, you know, the idea that one can build a, a classical concert hall but ignore pubs and bars and music venues. Uh, there's... there's there's value in both in different ways. So to me, the biggest problem that we have is, is collective mindset. Because a lot of the solutions that the music industry needs are not unique to the music industry. They're, they're solutions to you know, our, our urban problems, our problems with the built environment. We believe that we can add value onto, onto those solutions. Um, but we don't want to silo ourselves saying we need something specific that, that artists or theater producers or actors or whatever don't need it's it it's not that it's the value of creativity in our cities the value of art and the value in our case of of music whichever music someone wishes to consider So if you heard the last episode, you'll know that we've introduced an exciting new segment in which uh, someone out there in the big wide world tells us about their city. And since doing that, we've been absolutely inundated by literally some responses. First up this week, Shane, who you just heard speaks from Toronto, so we thought we'd hear from someone else from Toronto. I'm Victoria. I've lived in Toronto, Ontario, in Canada, for the better sum of the past nine and a half years. What's great about Toronto, uh, in a really tangible sense, is we have this incredible ravine system that runs throughout the entire city, where you can get off the subway and then be plunged directly into nature, and have a you know sort of a leisurely hour-long hike and come out the other end in downtown and. Uh, 
for people who live in the city who either don't want to get away or are unable to get sort of further away from the urban center and into nature, uh, it offers this great opportunity to, for a little bit of sanctuary uh, right in the city. And I haven't really seen this in any other city uh, that I've been to uh, thus far. Um, what sucks about Toronto is probably our political gridlock when it comes to transit planning. We've had all these plans over the years, including a major subway project under Eglinton Avenue, which is a major east-west corridor here in the city that was uh, supposed to be done in the 90s and was cancelled. And then we had another great plan under a former mayor, David Miller, called Transit City, which was a light rail plan that was then cancelled. Uh, and it seems that uh, it's quite cynical now in Toronto. Uh, good plans get cancelled on misinformation. Uh, Plans are funded uh, that are of dubious value uh, because it can get the votes at the right time. And so we've really been stagnant lately, and that's really been disappointing. Um, I don't know if that's unique to Toronto, but it certainly dominates our news cycle a lot of the time. Uh, so those are a couple of things that are great and not so great about uh, Toronto. Thanks. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. So let's... let's think of some good examples of very famous well-known bits of public art um, one of the ones that I really like that I think has been very successful is kind of symbolising not just the city but the whole region really is um, the Angel of the North, the big Anthony Gormley uh, statue by the A1 on the sort of road into, into Gateshead in, in the Newcastle area um, and I just think that's an absolutely firstly the name is wonderful and evocative and it kind of just stands above the landscape and it's just it, it's just kind of a beautiful thing that, that yeah. is there as a symbol of a city I mean, and it kind of looks like it's been there for a really long time as well it sort of has that quality where you think yeah. is that really not it's like 10 or 15 forever. years old I think but it, mm. it does kind of look sort of sort of eternal yeah I mean there's definitely um, things at the other end of the spectrum though especially in terms of not being timeless at all um, and a good example is uh, in Cape Town 
I think last year, um, an artist created a memorial to Mandela, which bizarrely was a huge pair of Ray-Ban sunglasses, which he never even wore, as far as we know. Most associated with Nelson Mandela, yeah, exactly. they were shades. Um, and it was pointed, it was, they were called Perceiving Freedom, this was the name of this artwork, but they were pointed towards Robben Island, where Mandela was in fact imprisoned for all that time. And the whole thing was just kind of absolutely bizarre, no one knows why that... I mean, obviously, art, you have artistic license, but I think the thing with public art is you also, it needs to make sense when you see it. You need to understand what, what this thing is there for, whereas these giant pair of glasses, I just don't think anybody... It's, I find it quite pleasing as an object, just the fact that somebody made these, this massive pair of glasses. If they hadn't said it was about Nelson Mandela, I'd kind of be, I'd be cool with that. Yeah, to be fair, maybe they should just drop that, yeah, yeah, <laughs> drop that some glasses. side of it. Exactly. Um, okay, another one that I quite like is uh, during its year as the capital of culture in 2008, Liverpool had this uh, this thing called the Superland Banana, which appeared, I think there was an original one and the copies everywhere, which is literally what it sounds like. It's a lamb at the front and a banana at the back because, you know, why would you not do that if you could? And I just think that's fantastic. And it's, it's not the... Super. Yeah, it is indeed super. Uh, whereas I think they're absolutely horrible. So that just goes to show that uh, public art, divisive. Yeah, but you're, you're wrong. Um... Okay, I think what what we probably need at this point is someone who actually knows something more than we do about public art. Luckily, as it happens, I'm married to that person. Hello, I'm Sarah Doctors. I'm an independent arts producer. Um, I put on festivals and shows and performance and uh, public art installations, um, mainly in parks and in town squares and in the public realm, and mainly across East London. A lot of the art and a lot of the beauty that is in our cities is stuff that is put there for that greater good, whether it's to do with, think about sort of the churches and the cathedrals and think about the sort of the statues of the great the great and the good that sort of happen in the sort of formal public spaces. That tradition continues with the facades on buildings and with the statues that get put in the public realm. And one of the big things that happens, particularly in London, but all across the country, um, just after the Second World War, is that there is a huge move towards beautifying and appreciating the public realm. Um, in 1946, John Maynard Keynes is the founder of SEMA, which becomes the Arts Council. And the whole point of it is to increase the accessibility of the fine arts to the public throughout the, you know, throughout the nation. And there's a huge open-air sculpture um, project. So it starts as a it starts as an exhibition in Battersea Park and then becomes a thing that the um, that the LCC take on with the with the specific intention of putting a major statue by a major artist in every um, council estate across across London and that also extends to a lot of the new towns as well. I mean, Harlow is set up as a uh, as a as a sculpture town, for example. Does that actually happens? All these like Harlow got like a Henry Moore or something. Harlow's got more art than anywhere else, and it's still, it's still got it. So, um, so yeah, Boar by Elizabeth Frink is still there. Uh, and you've got, there's, yeah, there's Henry Moore's, there's Ralph Brown's. The whole point of it was that the finest work of art were going to be there as part of the civic centre of the town. And the ambition was for it to be like Florence. Harlow is just like Florence, from what I can recall. They're very, very similar places. It's, it's, it's the, Flor- the Florence <laughs> of the North, but it's... <laughs> 
But they, <laughs> um, but the idea is that it gives Londoners this increased opportunity to enjoy the art. Is this stuff still there? Like um, in Harlow, a lot of it is, and you can still go and do the Har- the Harlow Sculpture Trail. Um, but the Sculpture Trail is a really big deal, and actually, it's something that's been brought back in in recent years so um every, so every year from like 48 there was this huge um lcc funded open air sculpture exhibition and there'd be lots of moors lots of hepworths and lots of artists that i can't even name now um but you'd go and walk around battery park and there'd be all these sculptures there and there's been different waves and that would happen every year and then it sort of fell into disrepute there was a um a rather unfortunate sculpture project that happened i think in the 1970s where new artists were asked to create very large-scale, site-specific statues. And famously, there's a a giant resin King Kong in Birmingham, just near the Bullring. And people hated this stuff. They absolutely hated it. The public response was overwhelming and terrible. And looking back sort of historically, one can say that there's probably a lot that there wasn't necessarily that much wrong with the sculptures, but there was a lot wrong with the public opinion of it. And what it created was a lot of very uh, large scale, very accessible artwork, accessible by which I mean easy to get to and vandalise. So, and every single piece of artwork, I think there were, I I think it was like 17 were put in place. Uh, One still exists now. Every single, uh, yeah, but you know, all but one of them was horribly, horribly vandalised and made to be taken away. So there's, and there's a push, and there's that relationship with public arts happened the whole way through its history. If you ask anyone if they want a statue, they want a piece of public art, the general response will be, no, don't need it, what's it for? Then once it's there and people live with it, it becomes a really important part of the placemaking and the idea, that sense of place and the way that people identify with it. And so in the last few years, there have been huge campaigns to save bits of public art, the ones that have, ex- that have survived. For example, um, Old Flow, um, in, which is a Henry Moore sculpture that was in a housing estate in Bethnal Green. Um, it had been there since the 60s, and in November 2012, Tower Hamlets Council wanted to sell it off because it was cost too much to insure, and it was get- they could sell it for £20 million, which plugs a massive gap in council funding. But it was, you know, it was there. It was part of the community. It's something. It was something that belonged to the people of Tower Hamlets, and so the local people plus the huge artist community put up a big campaign to keep it and to find somewhere for for it to be. Um, so where's Old Flow now? I think at the moment they're trying to work out where it can go because then there's a there became there then ended up being a huge custody battle because it was acquired. For the nation, through and it was so it was bought by the LCC and then given to Tower Hamlets. So it's actually who owned it. So then I think there's been a fight between two of the local authorities as to who actually owns it. And then the Art Fund, um, which is a charity that protect that acquires art for the nation. So it does exactly this. It finds something that's about to get sold off, and raises the money so that we can keep it. So uh, at the moment, I believe Flo is trying to... They're trying to find a home for Flo. But the um, the artist, um, Bob and Roberta Smith, has been sort of at the forefront of, you know, keep Flo. <laughs> <laughs> keep Flo flowing. Yeah. yeah. But this is, also some, this is also a big thing that English Heritage does now. English Heritage can only protect things once they've been there for 30 years, if that's so, pieces of public art. So there's... And there's been a huge tranche of really gorgeous things that got... 
um, that got their listed status as of like this January. So every January they'll come in a new selection of things. And there's some wonderful pieces. There's some um, uh, Elizabeth Frink um, artwork. These big heads, these giant, these giant sort of human heads that are just on a. I think it's on a shopping mall somewhere in like Guildford or somewhere. But yeah, the building was literally about to be demolished. There was a flatbed truck there ready to take these heads away. And they did a sort of on the spot listing of these giant heads that they get to be kept in place. Is the giant cat on the front of the Catford shopping centre a listed piece of public art? Or is that just a giant cat? It's not. If it's 30 years, it can't be listed. If it's not 30 years old yet, it can't be listed. We'll have to look into that. I think it should be. I think it's an important local cultural symbol. And also, it's a giant cat. I mean... There's, um, yeah, <laughs> there's a... One shouldn't, shouldn't have too much of a go at the, uh, at the giant cat, because actually... I'm not, I love the giant cat. Got, is, you know how I feel about cats. I know, you've got to be... Think about the... Um, I'm trying to think... I can't think of who the artist is. Japanese artist who created the giant cat that's in the um, Rablas de Reval in Barcelona. It's an incredibly popular piece of public art people love people love a cat people like something that they can enjoy so like there's the um there's a statue in Highbury Quadrant uh, which is a um, housing estate in North London it was part of this LCC project to have this open air sculpture in every housing estate and it's called Neighbours and it's one of the nicest and most accessible forms of art it's human it's two people two guys sitting there have got their arm around each other and kids can sit on it, people have their photos taken on it. They've, over the years, there have been, you know, little festivals where people make hats to put on these two chaps. And it's just this sort of, this small gesture of neighbourliness that you get from these two guys who are just, they're just there. And, this has to, and there's been a, a huge campaign to, to keep them, to restore them, to keep, the, to keep them in place. Because it's, you know, it's a, it'll be easy for them to go to, to be you know rusted away or to be stolen there's a lot of bad things can happen to public art and there's a lot of reasons for it not to be kept in place but because of the human scale of it people love them people form relationships with these bits of artwork and it's very difficult to know at the time what how people are going to react to it um there was a huge outcry with uh, a lot of the a13 artscape which is uh this huge transformation around the A13, around Barking and Dagenham, um, to totally transform the journeys and the routes around that part of town. And it was the largest public art project at that point in the world. Um, at that point, it was something like a £3.6 million pound project. Um, included like light installations, groundworks, and one of the sort of highlights of it, these sort of big pointy things that everyone locally calls Madonna's tits um <laughs> and it's and you know and it and it, they're these big black pointy cones it's a couple of stories high no one really knew what they were there for they were on a roundabout you know people were worried that kids were going to skateboard on them it was a big black surface so you could write on it quite easily but these are Thomas Heatherwick's these are Heatherwick Studios so now everyone now that Heatherwick is in the ascendancy and everyone knows who Heatherwick is these are now again part of the yeah, the cultural landscape is part of the heritage. It's one of the most visited public art sites in the UK now, if you're into visiting sculptures. Well, so if you do fancy a day out somewhere in the Barking and Dagenham area, then go check out McDonald's Tits. Indeed.
So on this week's map of the week, we're looking at a quite kind of artistic map that was created by a cartographer named Katie Kowalski. Um, we kind of first wrote about this last year. Um, the first thing you notice when you look at it is that it basically looks like everything's written in Comic Sans. I was told off by the cartographer because it's not in fact Comic Sans, but um, <laughs> it's not something that you're used to seeing on a map. And that kind of, it kind of, it's weird in all kinds of ways. I think especially if you're a cartographer, you would look at this and think this is all wrong because for a start, everything's a very bold color. Everything has these stark black outlines. Even the words are outlined in black. And um, it's obviously a bit of a gimmick, I think. And there's kind of been a wave of pop art maps, which I think are kind of cartography students being a bit outlandish as much as anything. But there are also some arguments, I think, that make sense with this. So I think it's, it is true that when you look at this map on kind of certain levels, so say if you're looking at a city street, for example, you actually can see things in slightly better definition. So if you're looking at kind of features of a street or a park or... Um, even individual buildings this kind of bolder design I think does actually help you so I mean I suppose we've talked to the people from Legible London before and their kind of really zoomed in maps of London streets actually have a tiny bit of similarity to these I I really don't like this map. I mean, I, I, I like it as a piece of art. I love a bit mm. of pop art, and it does look like it's a, a Liechtenstein or something. Um, you know, yeah. visually, it was inspired by Liechtenstein, yeah. I should say. Visually, it's quite a pleasing object, and you know, kudos to the fact you can just keep zooming in on it like Google Maps, and there will always be more levels of art beneath it. So, you know, mm. as an artistic achievement, I think that's amazing. But it's not much use if you're actually trying to get across Berlin or something, is it? It's just, you know, you kind of don't want to be distracted by all this extraneous stuff. You do just kind of want to sort of focus on what you need to and exclude mm. everything else. So, you know, artistically, it's lovely. But, you know, as a map geek, I, I reject this and it, it's against <laughs> everything I stand for, to be honest. But I think it does, it does highlight a slight problem because we kind of compared it to Google Maps at the time. And what you get in both cases is a slight race out of the bottom of the top because... On the Google Maps thing, everything is so faded out because it doesn't want to conflict with what you might be looking at that it all becomes a bit of a blur. Whereas if you look at the pop-up map, kind of everything's jumping out at you at once. So I guess it kind of shows how hard it is to be a cartographer in a way because you're showing all this stuff on a relatively small bit of paper or number of pixels. And uh, I guess it is hard to be clear. We could have a whole conversation about whether maps uh, count as a form of art or not, to which the answer is obviously yes. Um, but we'll do that another time. We'll be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Skylines, the City Metric podcast. It was presented by John Elledge and Barbara Speed and produced by Royful Brown. Our theme music is Dust from the Stars by Charlie Charles. You also heard The Weather by Destinazione Altrove and Embryonic Waves, composed by Matthew Reitzel. All music in the show is licensed under Creative Commons. You can find Skylines every two weeks on Acast and on iTunes, where you'll also find two more shows by our excellent colleagues, Seriously and the New Statesman podcast. In the meantime, you can find all the stories about cities, maps and geography you could possibly want on our website, citymetric.com. You can also talk to us on Twitter and on Facebook, where there's a pretty good chance we'll talk back. And if you wanted to leave a review to tell your friends how lovely we are, well, we'd very much appreciate that. Thanks for listening. It's the story of a cultural superpower that danced and sprinted its way to success. It brought the world reggae, Colin Powell, Rastas, Hip Hop, Bob Marley and much more. Its story is told to you in full colour for your podcasting ears. It's the story of how Jamaica conquered the world. 
Search for it on iTunes. How Jamaica conquered the world. It's probably the best least known podcast in podcastdom. Search for it today. Nineteen fourteen, June, Sarajevo. The heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, assassinated, killed by a Serbian nationalist. About six weeks later, world war breaks out. Germany, Austria-Hungary, Russia, France, Britain, everyone is drawn into it starting in August. And then, will America be drawn in? Listen to the first show exclusively on Mixcloud today and subscribe to us on iTunes beginning January the 18th. From Washington to Obama. 10 American Presidents, the new podcast from Royfield Brown. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Jia-Seoul역입니다. 내리실 문은 오른쪽입니다. 명동, 한국이나 Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> a lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. And so much more. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com